Um, and so what I want to talk about today is we're going to do like a Bible, like it's going to be pretty full of Bible. And what I want to do is actually help us all understand why the Exodus is actually a picture of our salvation in Jesus. Because once we understand that, it actually kind of brings us into a place of, of wow, like I can't believe there's that much that is there. Because have you ever read the Bible and you're like, well, I mean, there's really, like, has anybody ever been like, the Bible's boring? I'm like, you are boring. The Bible's the best book ever. Like, it's so interesting. There's so many things. So sometimes it just takes somebody around us to, like, bring us into that and, like, help us understand, like, the wow of the whole thing. And so um, I want to try to do that uh, today about, about Exodus and about understanding how do I identify as a follower of Christ with the Exodus of Israel? So it's going to be it's going to be cool. Um, and so when we look at Exodus, we actually regard ourselves as being delivered with Israel. So this is actually a foreshadow of what it means to be saved, delivered, redeemed by Jesus. And so we're going to actually go through Exodus, and we're going to start in Exodus three. So if you got a paper Bible, we're actually going to track with paper. That's awesome. Um, so we're going to start in Exodus three. So who knows Moses and the burning bush? Who's ever, yeah, I mean, probably most of us have heard of when Moses encounters the burning bush, right? So Exodus 3, 1 through 10. says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? Who? I mean, I would go too. Like, wouldn't you? I will go see this strange sight. And so then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and he called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then in verse 7, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So that's basically the initiation of Moses. So he's been in the desert for 40 years, kind of wandering around. Can anybody, is anybody impressed that I said like all those names, though? <laughs> like, that's what I was like. Because, oh, like, no other time. I was like, that's why I did that. I was like, excited about the first time. Also, it's um, but so that is the initiation of God speaking to Moses. And so I want to talk about this encounter first that Moses has with this bush, right? So it's actually a really, really interesting thing in the Bible. So who's ever heard the term angel of the Lord? Angel of the Lord. So you'll read that in the Old Testament sometimes. So in Genesis, in all the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, no, is it, yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. And Numbers. Thank you, Bible students. Numbers. Um, and so the first five books of the Bible are called the books of Moses. Because it's believed that Moses wrote those books. So it hasn't even been challenged until maybe like 100 years ago. So most people would hold that Moses wrote the first five books 
of the Bible. But this is actually Moses' first encounter with the angel of the Lord. So whenever you see that term, it's known as something called a Christophany. A Christophany is an encounter with pre-incarnate Christ. So anytime you see that phrase in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord, it's an example of somebody encountering Jesus. So you see this also when Jacob wrestles with God. You see angel of the Lord. Right? When you see the angel of the Lord that's leading the Israelites out of Egypt. So, the, like, think of that like Jesus. Right? So, so in the old, even in the New Testament, right, when the early church would study the scriptures, they were studying these scriptures. They weren't, they didn't have the Bible compiled as we do today. They were looking for Jesus and seeing Jesus through the story of God. And so that's a pre-incarnate encounter with Christ. And so this is a very, very interesting thing. And people who, like, love history and love studying the Bible, I think this is really fun. I've actually never preached about this specific thing before, but I think it's just amazing. So in this encounter is when God reveals his name to Moses. So this is the whole encounter where he says, you know, when Moses says, when I go to Pharaoh, what will you, what, who will I say sent me? And he says, well, you'll say, I am sent me, and this will be my name forever. Remember when... You might not remember, but that's what he says. This will be my name forever. The name you'll, show, you'll call me from generation to generation. I am, right? So then in first, in, when he first sees him in verse 3, or sorry, in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. That's the first time that phrase is heard. Remember he said that. So in Hebrew, it says, Malek, Yahweh, And so what that means, Malek means angel in Hebrew. Then there's four letters, which we now would know as Yahweh, right? The name of God, Yahweh. And so at this point, it's not a word, though. So those four letters in a row are not a word. And so what a lot of scholars believe is that Moses is actually describing something he's seeing. Now, here's something really cool. Ancient Hebrew is actually symbols. So when you look at ancient Hebrew, every letter has a correlating kind of hieroglyphic, if that makes sense. And so as Moses goes over to see this bush, remember, this is, the, this is a first mention in the Bible. So he goes over to see this bush burning, and he says, Malek, Yahweh, Yahweh. So he's seen it, and he says, angel, Y-H-W-H. Now the symbols for that are really cool. So what it actually means, if, he's, if he is actually, in fact, describing something that he's seeing, what he says is, Angel, arms outraised, behold the man with his arms out. Nails, behold the man with arms out. That's actually what that means in Hebrew. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? What did Jesus do? We have no context for a crucifixion. He has no context for what that would even look like. So he's actually describing what he's seeing, I think. Right? I think it's a pretty good, like, scholarly opinion. Like, I kind of agree with that interpretation of that scripture. Because especially if Moses wrote Genesis and everything before that, because we, we see angel of the Lord in the beginning, you know, of scripture. And so if Moses wrote Genesis, well then, that is how he continues to describe this picture of God. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Isn't that cool? So then, from that, so he's looking at God in this bush, which looks like Jesus, right? I, don't, I can't really think of anything else that would be describing. Then God says to Moses, verse 15, verse, uh, 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me. This will be my name forever. Or sorry, in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So then, what does Jesus say in the book of John? What does he say seven times? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way and the truth and life. I am the vine. Remember when the soldiers come to take Jesus away, they actually come and he says, I am, and they fall on the ground. Right? Jesus himself is the I am. So when Jesus himself says, hey, I've heard their suffering and I've come down, I hear them crying out. The crying out is also a repetition throughout the Bible. The crying out and God hears and he rescues. Right? So all through the Old Testament, Abel's blood cried out and God heard. And so he came to bring um, judgment with Cain. The Israelites cried out. God heard. He came to bring a deliverer. And then this repetition that happens throughout the Old Testament where Israel cries out and God responds to them. But then the final crying out is when Jesus comes and there's no more need to cry out because we now have been saved forever. There's no more need to cry out. But in Exodus 7, we see that Moses then enters Egypt. And so let's turn to Exodus 7. Who remembers what happens when he gets to Egypt? Bunch of crazy stuff, right? Bunch of plagues. So remember the plagues. So there's ten plagues that happen. Ten in the Bible is a number for what? Who knows? Kate probably knows. I actually don't know. I don't know what the ten is. Ten cycle. Yeah, ten is a completion of like order or like 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 it's a it's a, one of the completion numbers. So there's ten different plagues that come on Egypt. Right, so Moses is coming to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is a type and a shadow of the devil. So when we're, every time we're seeing Pharaoh in this story, every time we're seeing Pharaoh in the, in the Bible, he is a symbol of the devil and the oppression that the enemy has over people. So the Israelites are a picture of all people that will be saved. Pharaoh is a type and shadow of Satan. And Egypt itself is a shadow of sin. Right? Egypt itself is, is a picture of being in bondage and being uh, like attached to sin, stuck in sin, stuck in slavery in Egypt. Yeah. So Moses, the deliverer, who also is a type of Christ, so he's a shadow of Jesus. We're meant to see him that way. And so he stands in front of Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I won't. So he says, all right, well, this is going to be through do it the hard way. So then 10 plagues happen. Okay, so every time Moses comes, let my people go, Moses like, no, I won't. Then another plague comes. Then another plague comes. Now, who knows that Egypt had a lot of gods? Like, a bunch. A bunch, a bunch, a bunch of gods. So, what happens in these ten different plagues is God is actually demonstrating his power and authority over the gods of Egypt. Who knew that? Did anybody know that? It's really cool. So, what happens, the first plague is frogs. Or, sorry, the first plague is um, the water turning to blood. So the Egyptian god Hathi was the god of the Nile, and he was a water bearer. And so God says, okay, fine, I'm going to turn the water into blood. Then the second one was the god Heket, which was the Egyptian god of fertility and water, and was the Egyptian god that had the head of a frog. What was the second plague? Frogs coming out of the Nile River. So it's God displaying authority over that god. The next one 
was the life that came up from the dust. Remember, Moses struck the dust, and life came up and infected everybody. Well, Geb was the Egyptian god of the dust of the earth. Then the next one was the Egyptian god that had the head of a fly named Capri, which was the god of creation and the sun. And the swarm of flies was the next plague. The next one was um, Hathor, which was the god of love and protection, which was depicted as a cow. The next curse that came from that was the death of all cattle. So then after that was the ashes that turned to boils and sores all over the Egyptians. Now remember, Egyptians were like obsessed with being clean. Like they had no hair on their bodies. Like they were just like obsessed with being clean. And so the god of, let me see, this is the god of medicine, Isis. And so as they are completely covered in sores and boils, everyone in the whole nation become unclean. And they can't, they can't fix it with medicine. They can't do anything about it. And so everyone is even clean. Then the next one was hail that rained down as fire. Remember that? So hail came down from the sky. Then that, that curse was from Newt, the Egyptian goddess of the sky. The next one was when locusts were sent down from the sky. And this was the Egyptian god Seth, which is the god of storms and disorder. And the last, or the second to last one was Ra, the sun god, which is on most like Egyptian movies. But Ra was the sun god. And what was the next life? Does anyone remember? Three days of darkness. Then the last one was Pharaoh himself, which most people understood Pharaoh as being the son of God. So it was an incarnation of Ra, which is what they believed. So the whole nation would worship the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh, as the son of God, the son of Ra, what was the last manifestation? What was the last plague that came? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that amazing? God was displaying his power and authority, and that he is actually the only God. That's worthy to be worshipped. And the only God where we can be saved and not come under a curse. And so then what happens in Exodus 12? After the death of the firstborn. Which, how did they they escape, by the way? The death of the firstborn. The blood of the lamb. Which we'll get into that, which is really cool. So, they're protected by the blood of the lamb. In John 1, 29 through 31... Actually, let's say this first. So God told Moses to tell Israelites, right? Here's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to deliver you. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to celebrate a festival to me. And what you're going to do is you're going to kill a lamb at this time. You're going to take the blood. Your whole family is going to eat it in haste. You're going to, you know, basically the whole thing that we're going to do in a few weeks, which is pretty cool. But he says, do this and take the blood and spread it across the doorpost of your house. The blood goes across and down in the shape of a cross. So everybody put the blood on their home. Then when the angel of death passed over Israel, it saw the blood. It said every door where the blood was, the angel passed over and did not bring death to that house. They lived instead. But every door which did not have the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house died. And so in John 1, 29-31, this is when John, this is um, when John the baptizer is standing in the water baptizing people. And Jesus walks by, and this is when he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? So Jesus is identified as a Passover Lamb. 
the lamb that takes away sin. And even in Revelation, when we read about the throne room of God, it talks about the lamb that was slain before the beginning of time. That this has always been a picture of Jesus. This has always been a picture of the Savior, the salvation, the way salvation would come. So in Exodus 12, let's go to Exodus 12 now. This is when they actually leave. Isn't this cool? Has anybody ever like actually just studied this like all in line like this? It's fun. So in Exodus 12 is actually when they do the Passover and they actually come out of Egypt. So we don't need to read it because for a second time. But let's go on to Exodus 14. So then they go, they, they basically all leave Egypt. Pharaoh finally can't take it anymore. He's like, oh. Has everybody seen the Prince of Egypt? You want to take like Sparrow to see it the other day? So all of Israel are getting out, right? They're leaving. And then he says, and by the way, ask all your Egyptian neighbors for all of their wealth. And so they left with all of the wealth of the Egyptians. And so they leave with all this wealth. They go out of Egypt, which again, remember, they're they're leaving the picture of slavery, the picture of bondage to death. And Satan has no choice anymore but to allow them to go. Right? Because they have been passed over. So then, as they're leaving, what happens with Pharaoh? Who remembers? What does he do? Changes his mind. Tries to go after them. So this is a picture of what it means to be kind of on the other side. He's like, no, I'm still going to come after you, though. Even though you don't belong to me, I'm still going to try to come after you. But then what happens? What do they come up against? The Red Sea. Then what happens? God parts the Red Sea. And they see Egypt coming after them. They see Pharaoh coming after them to put them back in bondage. And then what happens? The cloud of, of um, fire by day and the cloud, or fire by night and a cloud by day, which again is a type and shadow and picture of Jesus that's going before them and behind them, goes behind all of Israel and stands as a shield causing darkness so that the enemy cannot get to them. Then he opens the Red Sea and they walk across, it says on dry ground, through the water of salvation. In Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10, it's paint, it paints a picture. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this, he paints a picture of Moses, of being baptized into Moses as they pass through the waters of salvation. Is how Paul puts it. And how do we, when we receive Christ, what is the picture of our repentance and our turning away from sin? Baptism in water. Amen. But that's a picture of baptism and a picture of being baptized out of something and into something else because they actually weren't totally free from Pharaoh until they got to the other side and the waters closed up again. And now they were sealed. But now they're baptized into something new that they do not understand and that they've never experienced. Because when you're a slave, you kind of just know how to be a slave. But God takes them into a new land, and his whole goal is where 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 does God want to take them? The promised land. The promised land. Right? A different land. But they can't live like they lived in Egypt. So now God has to teach them how to be his people. Because they actually don't know. That's the picture of how we leave a life of sin. This is why there's a very distinct difference before you know Jesus and after you know Jesus. If you think your life looks anything the same, that is not true. That's not true. We actually completely leave Egypt. And we come into a brand new position of not being in Moses anymore, but now being in Christ. 
We are baptized into a new body of people and into a new way of life. And it's God's intention that we would totally receive that deliverance. There's four things that God says to Egypt when he's about to deliver them. And these are the things that Moses says to them. I'm not going to turn right now. I hope I remember as I quote it. But he says, four I wills. And even as we go through the meal, we go through four I wills. Okay, do you want paper? Um, for I wills. And he says, I will deliver them from slavery. I will make them my own people. I will rescue them from bondage. And I will something else. But there's four I wills. You could look it up. We go through it in the meal. But these are all the promises of God. So it's not just that he wants to take us out of Egypt. It's not just that he wants to deliver us from slavery and oppression of the enemy. It's not just that he wants to, to rescue us. But he actually wants to make us his people. His identified people that belong to him. And that looks nothing like slavery. And so everything that the devil uses to enslave us before we are in Christ, he no longer has power and authority to do that as long as we enter into Christ and we remain in him. Because what we see then when we look at um, chapter 16 in Exodus... So we're going to move on. So what happens? Now they're in the desert. They're wandering for three days. Then people start getting mad. They're like, I'm sorry. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. Can we go back to Egypt where we had pots of meat? You're like, for real? (laughs) You want a pot of meat? Like, so, so this is bondage. This is slavery mentality. How many people, like, look, if you've never had to like make your own food, like, yeah, you're in bondage, but at least they're feeding you. Yeah. Bondage feels pretty good when it's all you know. So sometimes it's like better the devil I know than the one I don't, right? Who's ever heard people say that? And so they return back to sin. They return back to bondage because they actually don't want to learn a new life. Even though we're in Christ, we don't want to know what do I need to do now to live as a person of God, to live as the people of God, which is a higher and a better way, but it's foreign. And so now they're saying, oh, I'm so hungry. Moses, why'd you bring us out here to kill us? Oh, so I want to go back to Egypt. Um, God says, okay, well, I'm going to send quail. So it says in 16.4, this is going to send manna, actually. This is the first one. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are going to go out each day and gather enough for that day only. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Okay, so this is God's picture of lordship. This is the first time that God is giving them directions. See, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see if they will listen to my instruction. When we come into the kingdom, we then have to begin to listen to God's instruction and obey him, the Bible says. And so he's going to see if they will obey me. On the sixth day, though, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So basically, they told all of Egypt about it. Um, Every day they would go out on the ground and they would pick up something called manna. Now, what does manna mean? What is it? Literally translated, what is it? Isn't that funny? Manna, what is it? Like, literally, they didn't know what it was. They'd walk out. It's, it's been described as kind of like a wafery cracker type thing that you would just kind of grind up and then make it into little cakes or, you know, just kind of eat it like that. I don't know. I mean, I would try it, however. Um, that sounds pretty cool, right? But God just, like, made manna, like, up here. That'd be amazing. Um, I've heard of God. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so... Jesus um, is, is what? What does he call himself? I am the bread of life. 
So manna was the picture of bread. But this picture of bread is really interesting because it runs out every day. There's not enough. There's not enough bread. Now, bread is a symbol in this culture of life. So in the Israeli culture, bread is the symbol of life. You need bread to sustain yourself. You need bread to live. And so God is saying, I'm going to sustain you while you're here. But I'm only going to give you enough. Just enough. There's no more than enough in the Old Covenant. But the bread is a picture of something else that's coming that will be more than enough. So then, when we look at John chapter 6. Let's look at John chapter 6. Let's go over to the New Testament now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <laughs> okay. John chapter 6. Now, in John chapter 6, this is when Jesus is multiplying the bread. So he feeds the 5,000. So it says in... Let's see, uh, verse 5, 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw, wait, this is even better. Start at verse 3. When Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples, the Jewish Passover festival was near. When When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a bite. So for everybody to just have a bite, we couldn't even have enough. Sound familiar? Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far can it go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So probably about 20,000 people. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Remember, Jesus broke the bread and distributed as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by all who had eaten. So after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. So all of a sudden, there's more than enough bread. Now Jesus is the picture of the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me will live forever. So it's no longer about the poverty of, you know, the old covenant where you're getting just enough. Now Jesus is actually the picture of the bread that has come down from heaven that's meant to satisfy, but there's more than enough left over. So the bread is a symbol of Jesus himself. And manna was a temporary sustenance, whereas the bread that Jesus gives lasts forever. And it's interesting to see, too, that Jesus' first miracle was actually turning the water into wine. At the wedding in Cana. So this one, his mother tells him to do it, and he does it, and then the water turns into wine. Did it, has anybody ever noticed that there are six water vessels? So the number six in the Bible is the number for human effort. So anytime you see the word, the number six, 
and something is counted as six things. It is, it is a picture. Something about that story, something about that is communicating the effort that we make. So then Jesus turns six vessels into wine. Then the guests at the wedding say, wow, this wine is better than the wine that we even had at first. This is, again, a picture of new wine, a picture of the new covenant. So Jesus, then at Passover, we take his bread, his body, we take the wine, his blood, and it is our sanctification. It's our exit from sin. It's our remembrance of what he did. That's why Jesus says at the Passover festival that he has with his disciples before he's taken to be crucified. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's why we even will do communion tonight. We do communion when we gather to eat together, that it's in remembrance of Jesus. This is okay. Like nobody's bored, right? Yeah, <laughs> this is like really funny. Because like people are like, like looking at it. Like nobody's like saying a lot, which is fine, but I'm just making sure. I'm not like saying too much. It's nice to do a lot. So in Exodus 20, let's keep moving on in the story. So in Exodus 20, this is the giving of the law. So this is when Moses, remember, God comes down. And this is also when the Israelites were like, no, 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 you just tell us what God says because this is too scary. But... In Exodus 20 is when he gives the law. So Ten Commandments. <laughs> right there, remember the Ten Commandments. So this is when God spoke these words to Israel. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. So as he's saying, have no other gods before me. Right? This is, they're supposed to remember what he did to the other gods. Yeah. They were just there. They remember, hey, don't, don't worship those gods. How many times in our own life, right, do we worship other gods? And Jesus is like, I'm telling you, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> there is only protection in Christ. There is only protection in our lives in Christ. And so Jesus says, don't worship. Or God says to, to the Israelites, don't worship any other gods. And he basically lays out the law, right? Um, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make anything in an image. Um, you know, don't misuse the name of God. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, honor father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, you shall not covet your neighbor's things. Um, okay, and then it says the people kind of got a little scared because they've never seen God before like this, and they're like, Moses, why don't you be the one who kind of is the interim communicator for us, like we don't want to hear from God, it's terrifying. Um, and so God gives the law. Now in... Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I did not come to get rid of the law, but I came so that the law would be fulfilled. Sometimes we think of the Old Covenant, like the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and we're like, oh, well, you know, it's like the Old Testament, I have to listen to that. It's like, you know, like, no big deal. Like, I'm in the New Covenant now. Great, great, great. Here's the thing. <laughs> I like, I like Old Covenant, I preach over here, because like, 
thank you, thank you. Um, it sounds like you know this stuff, so you're just like, amen, amen. Um, but for real, like, the old covenant was not, like, a bad thing. Like, it wasn't bad. Like, remember, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. We today, right, the law went from being written on tablets to written in our heart. Yeah. We didn't have God inside to be an inner witness of what is right and wrong. Yeah. Right? So the Bible now talks about living by conscience, the understanding of what's right and wrong as demonstrated and taught to us by Jesus, by his spirit, which comes to live inside of us when we are in him. In this covenant, they don't have that. They have an external law that helps them to train and teach them how to understand who God is and what God requires. They don't have an inner understanding of that. And so God comes and he brings these boundaries around them to say, here, I'm going to make you my people. Here's what I desire. Here's my nature. I need you to understand what I require from you. And so he's putting around them this law. Now, the people didn't see the law as, oh, no, like, now we're in trouble. we got to, like, follow all these rules because of God. Like, like, sometimes we think about it like that. Like, oh, all these rules. It's like, no, no, no. They were not thinking of it that way. Read King David in the Psalms. I lay on my bed meditating on your law. How lovely. It's like kisses. It's like honey. Like, and we're, and we're just like, oh, rules. You know? Like, they love the law because it actually, who, who else? In the old covenant, like who else among the other nations had a God that actually cared enough about them to tell them what he required? Who else had a God that actually demonstrated love and protection over their people? So they loved the law. And so when Jesus comes, he did not come to say, hey, like out with the old and with the new. He said, I'm actually a complete fulfillment of everything you saw before, of everything you understood before, plus some. So everything you understood from the old covenant, I have come to fulfill it. Now, Jesus describes himself as the word, right? We hear in John, when John is writing his gospel, one through four, he says, let's actually turn there, John one. John one, one, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word, and this is capital W, the word was with God. Now, when it's saying word, what, do you, what does that mean? The logos, the logos in the Greek. The logos is the written word of God, the law, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So I want to I also do something else really quick, which is super fun. So in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, everything was made that has been made. In Genesis 1-1, in the Hebrew, it says, um, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Right? We read that if we're looking at Hebrew. So when you look at it actually in Hebrew, there are two lines. There are, there are two letters, the Aleph and the Taf. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Taf is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when you read it in Hebrew, it says, In the beginning, God created Aleph Tav, heavens, and Aleph Tav, earth. Now, Hebrew scholars look at this, they don't understand what it means. They actually have a subscript underneath it, usually it says untranslatable. And it's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the Aleph and the Tab. Does it sound familiar? Yes. I am the first and the last.
and the last, the beginning and the end. In Revelation, in Revelation, I think it's 20, it actually says in the Passion Translation, which is like super cool, when Jesus is like, you know, like white hair and like sword, and I don't even know how to like picture what it talks about, like as Jesus, and I'm like trying to get my head around it, but it said, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? Which Alpha and the Omega, that's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Aleph and the Taph. So actually, if you read that and you see Jesus as the Word who was with God in the beginning, and through him everything was created that has been created, it's actually saying, in the beginning, God created through Jesus the heavens and through Jesus the earth. So when John is looking back at Genesis, that's actually what he's saying. Hey, in the beginning, that was him. Isn't that so cool? Is anybody else like so cool? Um, so Jesus Himself is the Word. So when we think that's what Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. I am the law. So now, when you worship me, when you come into Christ, when you come into him, you now have the law inside to follow. Which is why it actually matters how we live. It matters what we do. Yeah. Not in like a condemning, like crazy way where we're, you know, just so scared of God. Because he's a God of love, but he's a God of righteousness. And so he brings us into conviction from his spirit. He convicts us of all truth. Right? So we don't have to read it anymore to know that it's right or wrong. But we are responsible to listen to his spirit. Amen. That witness inside that's like, don't do that. Yeah. We're like, oh, it's fine, I'm in grace. Hey, grace empowers us to do what the Holy Spirit's telling us to do. Mm-hmm. It's the purpose of grace. Grace is not there so that we can do whatever we want. Amen. The Bible actually says that is an abuse of the blood of Jesus. I think it, even in Thessalonians, we want to get like real, like, whoa. It talks about like trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. That's an ugly picture. Because yeah. that's the thing that actually redeemed us from curse. That's the thing that redeemed us from sin and death and from hell. And so I don't want to do that. I want to elevate and honor the blood of Jesus. And so we do that by the way that we live. And so I love that Jesus himself identifies with the written word, the logos. And so we look at scripture. This is why the Bible is so important. The Bible is so important. This is the very personification of Christ. It's not just like a cool book. It's not something that somebody wrote once and, you know, they were people, so they're probably flawed. Don't we think that God is able (laughs) to actually translate through us? His whole plan has always been with us. So he's not going to just like come and like drop a book from heaven and then we like read it. Like, no, he actually always wants to use people. That's his plan. So as he uses people to translate his spirit and to actually instruct according to his word, we're actually to take that as authoritative. And that's why the Bible is a big deal. It's not irrelevant. It is Jesus. It is like Jesus speaking to us. So I think that's fun. I'm going to share it. He was like, I'm perfect. Or we laugh. So let's move on into, into Passover real quick so I can wrap it up. I just get really passionate about like the word. How, how fun is that though? Like, I'm the beginning and I came up in the town. I'm like, okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, all right, yeah, this is cool. I'm just going to talk for like two more minutes really quick about Passover specifically. So then when God continues to give the law um, to the Israelites, right? Because the first time he celebrated Passover is when they leave Israel. 
But then, when God actually lays out, like, this is how I want you to celebrate this feast, like, forevermore unto, you know, all the generations. Um, the Passover lamb had to be selected on a specific day. So in Exodus 12, it instructs that it's supposed to be chosen on the 10th day of the first month. By the time of Jesus, only lambs from Bethlehem, here this stuff's crazy, only lambs from Bethlehem were considered eligible to serve as Passover lambs. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. So the lamb born in Bethlehem was chosen and brought into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives was triumphal entry. Um, and entered Jerusalem through the sheep gate. This is called his triumphal entry. Remember when Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, right before he's crucified, people are like, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then like a couple days later, they're, you know, they're like, never mind, crucified. But anyway, but like a couple days before that, when he's walking through and they're like, we love you. That's the triumphal entry of the lamb. That's the same journey the lambs take from Bethlehem to Passover into Jerusalem. As Jesus entered, you know, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save his son of David. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So it's, it's everywhere, you guys. Like, this stuff is everywhere. Then number two, the lamb then had to be examined. So in the Torah, it instructed that once the lamb is chosen, it had to be examined for blemishes. Remember, only a perfect lamb can be a Passover lamb. So it has to be without blemish. What's the picture of blemish? Sin. So the lamb must be without blemish. Only a perfect spotless lamb can be used for Passover. And so after arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple to teach. While there, he's approached by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, like all the people. And each group poses difficult questions trying to trap him. Essentially, they're looking for a blemish, right? They're, they're saying, you know, how can we disqualify that he is without sin? He's without blemish. He was the perfect example of what it means to walk in obedience to the Father. Which is our example, which now we can walk into in him through his spirit. So then third, the leaven must be cast out. And so we talked about this actually a couple times ago um, when I was preaching about the Passover preparation. So what they would do is they would get rid of all leaven. Leaven in the Bible is a picture of two things, sin and hypocrisy. Sin and hypocrisy. Remember when Jesus is speaking and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is sin and hypocrisy. Um, and so leaven is this picture of sin. And so the Jewish people, they're getting rid of leaven in their homes. So they're removing it from the house. They're shaking it from their clothes. They do like the biggest spring cleaning ever, right before Passover. It's the time to clean your house. Why? Because you're about to come into relationship with Jesus. Every impurity is removed. And so when Jesus enters the temple, he casts out the leaven. I've preached about this before too in like a lot more detail. But he casts out everything that does not belong in the temple, right? That picture of hypocrisy, the picture of sin. Everything has to go out that's not actually meant to be there. So in preparing the Passover for the cleansing, by the cleansing of the house. So this is the picture now of as we approach Passover, we're cleansing our own heart, right? Because no longer is sin, you know, the breadcrumbs of leaven are a picture of sin from without. But now we need to cleanse our heart because that's where sin would be, right? So it's this picture of repentance and approaching Jesus with a repentant heart and a clean life as far as we know, you know, because God reveals new stuff sometimes, all the time, in me at least, maybe in you too, um, you know, and we become more aware of things in our life, but the picture is that we actually search our own heart, yeah. you know, and that we're coming to Jesus from a pure conscience and, a, and a, a willingness to remove the leaven from our life. So then the lamb was taken to the altar for public display, 
And when everything was all set up, the lamb was led to the altar. At 9 a.m., the lamb was bound to the altar and put on public display. This is like what happened every year for Passover. At 9 a.m., the lamb was bound and put on public display. What happened to Jesus at 9 a.m.? He was bound and put on public display. On the morning of the 14th day of the first month, Jesus was led to Calvary, the same day on Passover. He was led to Calvary. At 9 a.m., he was bound to the cross and put on public display. And the lamb was always slain at 3 p.m. What time did Jesus die? 3. 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., the high priest would come to the altar and he would declare, guess, it is finished. Anybody in Israel who did not see this didn't want to see it. Anybody who didn't see it, like they pretended not to see it or they didn't want to lose their political power because it was not hidden. He was clearly the Messiah. When Jesus gave up his spirit, he dies. The Bible specifies he dies at 3 p.m. and he calls out to the Father and he's finished. The final death is paid, right? He says, Tetelstai, which is the, the Greek word, it is finished. It's been finished, it is finished, it will be finished. It's a, it's a plural verb. It encompasses all of time, before, during, after. But that's, the, that's not what they would say when they brought the lamb. So they say, it's finished right now. It's right now. Right? But Jesus says it is finished forever. Yeah. Amen. So when we understand Passover, and we actually understand the progression of Israel, we understand our own story. We understand who we are as the people of God. We understand, you know, that, that as a believer in him, what I am leaving behind and what I am entering, and the price that was paid for that, the price of our redemption, it's so, so, so valuable. Do you know that a lot of people think that, you know, well, that's a Jewish thing, we don't really celebrate that as Christians. But Passover was just as much a New Testament feast as an Old Testament feast. This is not something that, like, all of a sudden stopped when Jesus died. This is something that went on up until at least the mid-600s A.D. So even when we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a base, the Corinthians was a base of Gentile church. I don't even know if they had like any Jews, maybe a few. They probably had a few. But it's predominantly Gentile. And he says to them, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. We see Paul and all the, all the early apostles, the early Christians, engaging in Passover. And for hundreds of years, it was actually the most important celebration of the church. Every single year. And so when Jerusalem rebels against Rome, so this is like history, right? So then Jerusalem rebels against Rome. This is when the temple's destroyed. It's like 70 AD. Jerusalem rebels against Rome's like lordship over Jerusalem. So yeah, Jerusalem. Anyway. So they rebel. Jerusalem, uh, or Rome comes, puts Jerusalem under siege. I think it was four years. Jerusalem falls and they destroy the temple, which, right, which is Jesus' prophecy. This temple will be destroyed in three days. He was also speaking of himself, but he was actually talking about the actual destruction of the temple. Um, and so when Constantine decided to... Oh, oh, go, go back a little bit. Okay, so then after that time, the Jews kind of become like bad news in Rome for obvious reasons because they rebel. They're kind of like... They're seen as kind of ins- insignificant, inferior, and everything that's Jewish becomes really like to Romans. And so the Jews become, begin to be persecuted. And so we read in, even in the book of Acts... As the church is spreading in Rome, many Jews were expelled from Rome. So we read like Priscilla and Aquila and like some of these other people who actually like have left, I think it was Priscilla and Aquila, who have left Rome because of the persecution. 
They can't be in Rome anymore. And so there's a general distaste and an unwelcomeness to Jews in the Roman Empire. So Christians are not seen as Christians. They were only called the followers of the way. They were really integrated into Jews at that point in history. There wasn't a distinction. And so this is why the Christians also were being heavily persecuted in Rome. Because of their distinct, because of their association. So then as they're celebrating Passover, you know, without fail in the early church, what happens in 318 AD? Well, Constantine gets this, you know, revelation of Jesus on a cross, supposedly, and then he basically converts the whole empire, because he wins a battle he wasn't supposed to win, converts the whole empire and says, okay, guys, now we're Christians, but we also still hate Jews, so um, we're going to get rid of everything Jewish about Christianity. And so all of a sudden, Christianity becomes European. (laughs) And so, for real, and so everything about Christianity that was Jewish was extinguished. Because of their hatred for the Jews. In the Council of Antioch in uh, 345 AD, this is the proclamation that they declared over the church. If any bishop, elder, or deacon will dare after this decree to celebrate Passover, the council judges them to be cursed from the church. This council not only disposes them from ministry, but also any others who dare to communicate with them. So you will be excommunicated. And then in the Council of Laodicea in 365, it is not permitted to receive festivals which are by Jews. In the Council of Agde in France in 506, it says Christians must not take part in Jewish festivals. Again, Easter must be celebrated at the time set by the decree of Nicaea. And then basically, even from there, there was a death decree put out in the late 300s, where if anyone was caught celebrating Passover, they would be put to death. And still, they could not get it out of the church until the 600s. And so as we're in a time of restoration, you know, in the church, there's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to bring back things that have been lost. And sometimes we just may not understand the significance because it's not culturally normal. Like, I never really thought about it, to be honest, until a couple years ago. I was like, actually, this is really important. Like, we should celebrate it. And it's, 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 it's really, really beautiful, and it's really become my favorite holiday. But I wanted to bring us into a real understanding of why we think it's so important. Because I think you can hear that and be like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, you know, you eat a cracker or anything. But as we're going through all these, pic- these pictures of Jesus and the pictures of who we are as believers, and, you know, you're, you're like, you're dipping parsley in salt water, and it's a reminder of the tears I cried in slavery, and you're dipping, the, you know, it's all of these, like, actions and things that you're participating in that are bringing us into an encounter to remember Jesus. And to remember the price of our salvation. So we want to really um, encourage everybody. Like bring friends. It's such a beautiful thing for Christians to be a part of. And to to celebrate together. Um, You know the message of, of Passover is. I have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And delivered from the power of the enemy. It's a powerful thing that we're celebrating. 